Now we're going to turn our attention to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians 1 again, and today we'll be focusing on verses 12 through 14. So John MacArthur, writing on joy, uh, one time said, One of the surest measures of a Christian's spiritual maturity is what it takes to rob him of his spirit-bestowed joy. What does it take to rob you of your spirit-bestowed joy? And are you a joyful Christian? Don't you love being around joyful believers? There's just something infectious, contagious about being around someone who's joyful, isn't there? I love that. But, <clears throat> but many of us tend to lose our joy when we go through hard times. So let me ask you, what would it take to rob you of your joy? Look at, look at me with Philippians uh, chapter 1. We'll read verse 12 through 14 where Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Lord, as we open your word today, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to understand the things that you have for us. Help us to see, Lord, in a fresh way, uh, your sovereignty, your goodness over all things, and to trust in you more fully. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I read this um, illustration about uh, our background of John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a, a Baptist pastor and an independent, which meant that he was not aligned with the Church of England, which was, uh, it was a dangerous thing back in his day to not be part of the state church unrecognized. And his liturgy or theology did not line up with that of the Church of England. His preaching, however, was so fruitful that the Church of England didn't quite know how to shut him up. Eventually, politicians succeeded in royal legislation forbidding any unlicensed man from holding private meetings where more than five people were in attendance. The king effectively attempted to stamp out evangelical worship services. Well, John Bunyan was arrested, and in fact, over the course of much of his adult life, he spent years in prison. On one occasion, a magistrate was sympathetic and wanted to release John to his wife and children. And Bunyan's famous statement was delivered in that courtroom. If you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. Even in jail, he began preaching in the prison courtyard. He not only attracted a large audience of inmates, but hundreds of people from Bedford, England and the surrounding area would show up on the Lord's Day and stand outside the prison compound in order to hear him expound the scriptures. Finally, the official silenced him by placing him deep inside the jail in isolation. Yet there, in the solitude and the silence, John Bunyan would end up speaking louder and further than anyone would have ever imagined. 
In the inner recesses of that prison, John wrote an allegory about how the gospel of Christ and his cross work convicted a young father by the name of Christian. Christian believes the gospel and as a result becomes an outcast in his town. John Bunyan then records the journey of Christian through one spiritual battle and one trial of adversity after another as Christian travels to the celestial city or heaven. His book would sell like wildfire. Ask John Bunyan and he'd tell you his plans and his passion were to pastor and to preach, not to write a book and certainly not from prison. Yet his writing far exceeded the reach of any of his sermons. And that book, entitled Pilgrim's Progress, would go on to reach the hearts of tens of millions of people. In fact, for centuries, Pilgrim's Progress was the most widely read and widely translated book, second only to the Bible. Now, I suppose if you would ask John Bunyan when he was in that inner isolated cell, how are things going for you, John? He might have said, well, actually, they're not going too well. But God used that time to isolate him, to, to enable him to focus on writing this work which would impact the lives of millions of people. See, God specializes in turning bad times into good things. The same lesson is true for the Christian life today. And sometimes, you know, it takes a long time for us to see the good for which God is working. But we remember also Romans 8.28, still valid. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So what is the purpose that God is working in your life even through hard times? And because Paul so trusted in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, he was able to say, number one, I have suffered setbacks, and the gospel is advancing. Verse 12, he says, but I want you to know, brethren. Well, first of all, that, that phrase, I want you to know, brethren, immediately kind of puts this on notice. This was a common expression in Paul's day to call people to pay attention to something that might be easily misunderstood or hard to believe. In our contemporary vocabulary, it might be something like saying, now, I'm about to tell you something that you're going to find hard to believe, or you're not going to automatically buy into this, or maybe in a short version, believe it or not, let me tell you something. That's what it's meant by, I want you to know, brethren. And then here's what he basically says next. I have suffered setbacks but the gospel is advancing. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, the things which happened to me, in that one phrase, he puts together all of Acts 21 through the end of the book of Acts. Eight chapters worth are encompassed in this phrase, and the things which happened 
to me. The things like being arrested and falsely charged, the being in prison for years um, at a time under Felix and then later under uh, Festus, uh, being mistreated and uh, eventually appealing to Caesar, then year after being in prison there for years, finally sent to Rome on a slave ship as a prisoner chained and suffering a terrible storm which, which broke up that ship and it crashed on the shores of the island of Malta where he was bitten by a viper the first night he was there and so forth. And he, he finally gets to Rome where he's now shackled with a, a prisoner, uh, with a prison guard. The things which have happened to me. He says in a summary way, because there's something more important. And I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I want to just uh, highlight a couple of the words here in this. That is uh, the word actually, or <clears throat> I think one translation says really, is um, the Greek word that's everywhere else translated greater. But it wouldn't make sense to use the word greater here uh, in English. It just wouldn't flow well. But what he's basically saying here is the uh, things which happened to me were for a greater purpose, a greater good, which is the furtherance of the gospel. And so uh, this is, you see, one of the secrets of joyful living. That is, what is the greater purpose that God has? What is the, the greater good for which God is working in my life? Often the greater good I think that ought to be in my life is different from the greater good that God sees is most needful in my life. And so am I willing to latch on to and praise God for what he's wanting to do with me? So the, the next word is the word furtherance. So which have greater, more greatly turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. <clears throat> This is also translated the advancement or the progress of the, the gospel. And this particular word for furtherance um, is a word used back in Paul's day for like um, <clears throat> an exploration team or an army advance team that is hacking their way through underbrush to, to make a way forward. And so the idea is that with, with great difficulty, this is happening, to, to advance forward. So <clears throat> it is the cutting forward is what the verb means, essentially. And so Paul is saying that these things have happened to me so that this <clears throat> really hard task of trying to get the gospel out has been made possible because of what has happened to me. And so Paul is rejoicing in it. It was worth it for the greater prize. The advancement of the gospel. <clears throat> so have you lost sight of the greater prize? I think in our ordinary, mundane, day-to-day -day life, 
we lose track of what the greater prize is, what, what is important, what, what God would have us to focus on and strive for. And Paul's going to later talk about this in chapter 3. For instance, he'll say, the things that were gained to me I have counted a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Savior, for whom I count all things but loss. And he's going to say, I have not yet attained, but this one thing I do, I press onward for the goal of the prize. But we lose sight of the prize when we focus on ourselves. If my life is about me, I'm not going to see it. But if my life is about God first and others second, then I'm going to see the prize <clears throat> a dear friend of mine and also happens to be a pastor, his name is Joe Henson, <clears throat> reminds me of this. Joe is the most joyful person I've ever known. And if you knew Joe, you might wonder with all his background why he was so joyful. It's because he had this kind of outlook on life of looking for the greater prize and what God is doing. Let me give you an example. Uh, Joe and I were prayer partners for years. And uh, one day he told me he needed to go to the hospital. He was having some, some problems, I knew. So he was going to the hospital. He wanted me to uh, come in and pray with him. Uh, and so I said, okay, Joe, what do you want me to pray about specifically? He says, listen, God is sending me to the hospital. And he's got people there. He's got nurses there and caretakers. He's got people who are going to come in and clean the room. He's got doctors who are going to be coming in and out. He's sending people to me there in that room that he wants me to talk to. And those people need to know about Christ. And what I, what I want you to pray for is that God will give me the wisdom to know when to say what to whom. Just that, that God will give me the wisdom to know when to say what to whom. And, and so we, we prayed for him, and, but it struck me that in all this conversation, he never mentioned what was wrong with him. He never mentioned the problem, nor did he mention the, the cure that he was hoping that was going to happen. He only talked about others and his joy at the prospect of being able to be used by God. That's how to be a joyous Christian. I want you to know that the things which have happened to me have happened for the greater good of the furtherance of the gospel. And because Paul so trusted in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, he was able to say that. But he's also able to say, secondly... I am under military guard, and they are my captive audience. Verse 13. And so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So what would seem like uh, to most Christians to be an unmitigated disaster, Paul is referring to as an um, unequaled opportunity. To the whole palace guard has become evident to the whole palace guard. That's also called the praetorian guard in 
as one commentator notes, um, their Latin name, the official language of the Roman Empire, was the Praetorian Guard. They were stationed throughout the empire to squash any potential rebellion. They're the only military force allowed inside the capital city. And those who are stationed there have one objective, to personally protect the emperor and the imperial family. They were the elite troops, highly trained, paid a double salary, which would be around $100,000 a day in today's economy. That's pretty good for a soldier. Caesar Augustus had first installed these troops. He had handpicked every soldier until he had chosen 10,000 men to form the Imperial Guard. They served for no more than 16 years. And when they retired, they were honored with Roman citizenship and all its privileges, as well as a pension totaling what would equal today of a million dollars. They eventually became known as kingmakers because only the nominee that had their approval and their protection could ever hope to gain the crown and the throne. They had earned the respect of their countrymen. They were loyal, hardworking, highly disciplined, well-trained soldiers. And so Paul is having this opportunity to minister into their lives. See, Paul didn't complain about his chains. He consecrated his chains to God's use. So he says, And so it has become evident to the whole praetorian or palace guard and to all the rest. Well, who are they? Are they? Who's all the rest? Well, they would have been government officials and attorneys and most likely Jewish scholars who were working on behalf of Rome to try to decide whether this sect of Christianity was some kind of aberration or whether it was part of Judaism or whether it was threatening to, the, uh, to Rome. And this would have included people who were in Caesar's own household. We know this because of something Paul writes later on. Look at chapter 4 and verse 22. <clears throat> chapter 4 verse 22 says, All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. So not only had he the opportunity to um, share with the palace guard, but also with the household of Caesar. His influence extended even to Caesar's household. So Paul was chained to these uh, palace guards. They took turns, uh, six-hour shifts, so there were uh, four different guards he'd be chained to each day with a um, chain of about 18 inches all day long chained to someone. Four different guys each day, seven days a week, 
making 28 different palace guards in a week's time every week that he got to witness to, and they were his captive audience. And God used that to influence and to bring a number of those to know him as Lord and Savior, and even then to extend into the household of Caesar himself. And, and then he says here, in verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest. Well, what has become evident? The last part of the verse. That my chains are in Christ. Now we're prone to say something like, my life is in Christ. My trust is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. And those are all great things. We should be saying those. But this is beyond that. This is saying, my chains are in Christ. That is, that I am trusting Christ even in my chains. He is still in control of my life, even in my chains. And so everyone came to understand that Paul was there and in prison, not because of the Jewish people who arrested him, not because of Felix or Festus, not because of Roman law, not because of the Praetorian Guard. He was there because his chains were in Christ. He was living for Christ and fulfilling Christ's mission for his life. And finally, Paul says in verse 14, basically, I am in prison so that others can experience freedom. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. My chains, he says, gives others confidence. The implication is that most of the believers were fearful. And you can understand why they would be. I mean, here's the, the leader of the Christian movement and he's in jail. He could be uh, executed at any time. Well, what about us? They're thinking. But by Paul's own uh, testimony, his joy in his situation, his confidence in the Lord in all this, that is infusing joy and hope in other people. Fear is contagious, but so is courage. And Paul's willingness to interpret his adversities with joy and trust in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God ends up infusing joy and trust in the others, and they become confident in the faith. Now I can say, <clears throat> I don't know why I'm going through this hardship. Where is God in all this? <clears throat> or I can say, I don't know why I'm going through all this hardship, but I know that God is is in all this. That makes a huge difference. If I pity myself, others will pity me. But if I point to Christ, others will look to him. When you face hard times, do you see yourself as a victim or as a victor 
in Christ. Paul says, my chains give others confidence and others are free to speak the word. For Paul, the pain was worth the gain. For most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It was worth it, he's saying. His chains were worth their freedom. He was in chains, but the word of God was unleashed in Rome. He was more concerned about the free proclamation of the gospel than his own freedom. Because people matter. Because God matters. Because truth matters. Because the gospel matters. God turns bad times into good things. Do you trust him for that? Can you say, my chains are in Christ? Well, probably not because you're not in chains. But maybe something like, my trials are in Christ. That's saying, my trials are, Christ is ruling over all my trials. He knows what is happening and he is controlling those things. He's in charge of my life. He's sovereign over all. I can trust him in my trials. My trials are in Christ. My, my hopes are in Christ. My health is in Christ. My finances are in Christ. My future is in Christ. My destiny is in Christ. My chains are in Christ. Everything in my life is in Christ. If you can say that, then you have reason for joy no matter what happens. But perhaps you, you yourself, are not in Christ. That is, you have not known yet what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want, you to tell you, I want to tell you today that Jesus came to die on the cross in order to pay for our sins. Every one of our sins he paid for on the cross. So that whoever trusts in him, whoever will acknowledge their sin and say, Jesus, I know you died for me. I believe that. Then... The Bible says you are born again. That means you have new life, a spiritual life that will live forever. You'll have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You are, from that moment on, in Christ. Safe and saved in Him. If you're not sure what all that means, then I would love to talk with you after the message today. Or you can talk with one of our, our elders. We'd be glad to share with you how you can know that. We're going to close today with a song I have asked the worship team to uh, do for us in closing. I think really communicates the message of this passage. If I truly believe that God is sovereign and God is good, then, then I won't complain about my lot. I won't covet what others have. I won't feel sorry for myself, or reject what God is doing. 
And the result will be joy in myself, encouragement for others, and praise to God. God brings light to our darkness. He turns our mourning into joy. And sometimes God's blessings and his mercies come to us disguised as trials. And even in that, God is in control.